I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, Condor Man. So, Casey, it looks like we're in the business of talking about spy films. Oh, my gosh. Hey, but Mike, I'm going to pitch an idea for you. How about a James Bond movie where James Bond never fucks? <laughs> that, that's that's <laughs> exactly what we're talking about. We were talking about the all-ages spy superhero film from the year 1981 by Walt Disney Productions, Condor Man. Yeah, it's uh, it's something special. It's <laughs> something I, special. I, I can already sense something in the air, but I'm going to say <laughs> this was a childhood movie for me. I saw this at least a dozen times on the Disney Channel when I was like five years old. Yeah. Of course, this was directed by Charles Jarrett, who mostly directed a lot of big period costume dramas mm-hmm. like Mary Queen of Scots and And of a Thousand Days. And it was written from a screenplay by Mark Sturdivant, who mostly worked as a second unit director hmm. for most of his career. And the only other writing credit I could see is an episode of Beretta. So, oh, okay. so this was his lone uh, screenplay as far as his career he went. He just had a box full of cocaine and six weeks and Disney said, write a shitty James Bond movie. <laughs> oh, oh, man, I am, I'm already feeling my hackles get up. Um, this is, a, this is a, sc- a movie that was also seemed to be based extremely loosely on, and in the script, and I mean, in the opening credits, yeah. it says, uh, suggested by, <laughs> suggested by a book called The Game of X by Robert Sheckley. Um, that's got to mean that it's super loose, yeah. like, or maybe they were just trying to avoid a lawsuit, you know, kind of like Terminator right. and the whole thing with Harlan Ellison. Maybe right. that's a similar situation. Sure. But anyways, getting right into it, uh, we are joined yet again by friend of the show and writer for the atomic junk shop.com. Mr. Greg Hatcher. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you. As always. So, uh, Greg, um, if you had to synopsize Condor man, um, in like a paragraph or two, what is this movie all about? Um, a civilian cartoonist is drafted by the CIA for what should be a routine career exchange. It goes horribly, horribly wrong. And somehow the cartoonist is able to draw on his own comic book fantasy life and incredibly persuade the CIA to back him (laughs) in this strategy to to foil the KGB and save the day. Yeah, I always said this is a movie essentially where a comic book artist blackmails the CIA <laughs> into turning him into Batman, essentially, turning him into his own comic book character, to building this supercar, building an elaborate wingsuit. And I've got to say, given that this is like the 80s, this is not the worst thing that CIA was spending money on. <laughs> no. I mean, they weren't sending him into like murder a Latin American democratically elected leader or anything. <laughs> I mean, let's put aside the fact that it's a whole story about a a 
rail thin goofy haired comic book artist failing upward into being the world's best super spy let's just also say that it that i cannot believe that the cia has to rely on just this one guy he's been like hey you should choose hey file clerk hey teen wolf dad by the way yeah harry is played by the actor who played teen wolf's dad and against michael j fox in teen wolf um you should just choose anyone to drop off these sensitive paperwork oh just this guy right here <laughs> yeah and that, that guy is michael crawford who for was the original phantom of the opera right. on broadway right. right and uh by the way was also a runner up and almost played doctor who in the 90s tv movie but lost out to paul mcgann i could see him as doctor who he definitely has that vibe he's a he's a british actor he looks a lot like tom baker he's see, he and he also it, this is strange because the character he's playing is all American. Condor Man is all American. And uh, with how much of it's like 85% of this movie, his dialogue is looped for sure. And I thought first for a minute, I was like, oh, he just had a really terrible American accent. And so they had to find some Disney found some character actor to fill it in. No, because later in the movie, you see there is actually some production sound that follows through and you can hear it's actually the same guy. But that lent to me. I mean, I like you probably saw this movie on the afternoons on you know on syndication from whatever the disney movie of the afternoon is and mike i never finished this movie until watching it now oh i never saw this movie all the way through breaking my heart (laughs) you're breaking my heart fredo (laughs) i think i must fall between you two somewhere um because i never saw it at all oh really until Mm. you asked me wow wow but I didn't hate it as much as Casey apparently does. I just thought it was kind of the a throwback to the cute, fun live action movies that Disney used to do as a matter of course. Right, right. I, I would just file it in the same pile as, you know, the Apple Dumpling Gang, sure. Escape to Witch Mountain. It's just kind of a Shaggy now. Dog. Shaggy Dog. Well, Shaggy it Dog was is not, the it's best not nearly, of them. It's not nearly as good as Escape to Witch Mountain, though. Well... You guys are making me feel so old. Because <laughs> really, re- yeah. the good ones are the one, the collegiate ones with Kurt Russell. Yeah. yeah. World's yeah. Strongest Man, the computer wore tennis shoes. Yeah. Everyone forgets that he was a Disney star at the beginning of his career. Mm-hmm. Everyone, he was a Mouseketeer. Yeah. Everyone was shocked when he did the Elvis movie and followed that up with Escape to New York. It's just like, holy God, <laughs> he, he Kurt t- Russell, what have you done to yourself? <laughs> it seems like they're oh really- Oh my God. <laughs> there's this long history of people that you don't think could be action stars and you laugh at the idea of them becoming action stars, getting that kind of role. The same thing uh-huh. happened with Bruce Willis. The same mm-hmm. thing happened to Will Smith. But I don't think anyone- saw that Michael Crawford sort of moving into that kind of role. But I think that's the point. I think that he has chosen specifically because he is not James Bond. Right. That this is in a lot of ways an all ages James Bond movie that it's a, you know, it's a genre of, of movie that, Everyone sort of loves it, sort of entrenched in our pop culture with all of the gadgets and the supercars and the the daring escapes, mm-hmm. gimmicky henchmen and uh, battles and gadgets and all that stuff. But there's also a lot of like adult stuff and stuff that is fairly problematic and aged poorly in it. Oh, so you I, can't I think sh- this is strangely there's so much there's there's not a lot, but there's enough sexual innuendo in this movie between uh, the defector Natalia and the Condor Man character that I'm Woody like, Wilkins, yeah. 
and I'm like, whoa, how'd this pass yeah. the standards and practices from that, Disney Corporation? That actually wasn't the thing that tripped me up. I looked at it and suddenly kind of set up. It's like, wow, Woody just killed that guy. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he killed He's several a, people. He, there's a lot of people. There's a body count in there. That. That's true. There's <laughs> a number of exploding cars. But I mean, even with all of that, there, the Bond franchise, for instance, is not something you could probably show a kid under the age of 10. Where this is, I think, is a good entry level. Craig's <laughs> <laughs> raising his hand. But I mean, Craig's like, I was four. I know, I know, I told you guys this story. Yeah. Um, Goldfinger was broadcast on ABC. It was the first Bond movie on television in 1972, and I was nine. Oh. And I was allowed to watch it. That that does seem like where you about where you'd start. I'd say nine, ten, eleven. Mm-hmm. Seeing well, certainly a TV edit of the movie of a Bond movie is probably. But better. I mean, you're like watching a Bond movie. And you're like, there's naked ladies in the opening credits. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> I mean, the, and then you always kind of feel like you're getting not, away with not, something. Not on ABC. <laughs> there was always a suggestion of nudity, but mm-hmm. I mean, like you said, James Bond fucks, <laughs> and it is undeniable. Yep. I mean, you can't say that he's not. And I think Condor Man is a great entry level that you could show a kid without having to answer uncomfortable questions after the screening is done. I will tell you, my six and a half year old uh, thought this movie was amazing. <laughs> See? So, I, you know, I, there's no accounting for taste. Oh, well, it's, it's oh. nothing. To, you guys keep talking about it like it's a matter of taste. It's really not. Clearly, this movie imprinted on Mike at the right age. He did. It did. The, the way Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea imprinted on me when I was that age. It feels like it's like the cycle of abuse. Now you've passed this on <laughs> <Yes>. your son <laughs> because he watched it at the right age. And now uh, he's going to be like me defending this in 30 years and going, no, this movie is good. <laughs> I, I'm not going to say that this movie, uh, this movie is bad. I just think it is. It it hits the brakes on the story for large portions of it to insert these, what I think are really well done chase scenes. Uh, yeah. What I think the stunt, the stunt coordinator for the stunt driving was, I think it worked on bond movies before, I think. So clearly they had Disney paid Disney paid money in, in, uh, two different ways. They clearly paid money for locations because they film in places that look like Bond movies film. They go to Monte Carlo. They're in Paris. You know, they're in Yugoslavia, which I guessing they didn't film in Yugoslavia back it, then. It looks more like Yugoslavia than California, though. That's true. No, they 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 the locations seem right for where they're telling the story. And secondly, you know, uh, the chase scenes aren't boring. They're definitely not the kind where your sort of archetypal '70s action movie where yeah, they get. Um, stunt drivers and cars to to wreck, but there are enough novel, interesting little things, and they're executed with some some real talent to to have them be exciting. They're not boring at all. And I will say this: Michael Crawford is remarkably charming in this movie. That he doesn't go full on Jar Jar Binks throughout it. He dances on that line a couple <laughs> yes, times. He yes, he does. <laughs> he dances on that line so close. But I think what I what I like about him is that there's this weird sincerity that he has. I mean, he's clearly naive. You know, where he's just like, well, if we. You know, if we're in Yugoslavia and we don't know where we are, then Krakow won't know where we are. It's yeah. sort of like, sort of like, what are you talking about? You're you're like up against like the second most powerful 
in, an espionage organization on the planet. Yeah. And you're like, well, they're not going to find us. Yeah, they'll find us. But the thing I kind of like with Woody is that Woody <laughs> is somebody who kind of acts the way that a nerd would act if he gets to be a spy, which is that he's a little too enthusiastic to put on disguises, which fuck who wouldn't be, <laughs> um, that he really likes gadgets. He li- And a lot of it, these things are based on his designs. There's a moment where he kind of has uh, Russ, who is not only a boss of the CIA, but he's going to be bossing around MacGyver later. <laughs> um, and- See, that actually works for me. That's kind of a headcanon thing. It's like, well, clearly, if he employs Fergus MacGyver, of course he would employ Condor Man. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's in his wheelhouse. So that's, he's thinking outside the box, right? It is. It's it's pretty great. I mean, it's Dana Elkar, so I mean, it's it's pretty awesome. So um, there's a moment where he's negotiating, and Woody's like putting his foot down. It's like, no, if I'm going to go on this mission and risk my life, you're going to use all of my designs. And what I love is in the background of that scene on all the drawing boards, you can see the Condor Man car, you can right. see the Condor Man boat, you can see the drawing he has of the wing harness, and it's like, no. So the government is going to pay for my elaborate comic book uh, world stuff because that was always the thing with this character of Woody is that he doesn't want to put he has this weird sort of integrity about I'm not going to put anything in the superhero comic unless it can happen in real life because <laughs> unless he does it himself first yeah and it's yeah. like so you you have this kind of, it's weird because it's the 80s where it's all about gritty and realism coming up but this isn't really grit it's not gr- it's not gritty but it has that sort of like more grounded vibe to it no i mean and and the the violence in it is pretty bloodless i think yeah. the i think the the most the most sort of violent you get other than exploding cars or whatever um is at the beginning when they he goes to istanbul um, for his handoff, this is before he has sort of decided to go all in as Condor Man. Um, there's a fight, and it's like, you know, some KGB agents come into this restaurant, and then he just like does that goofy thing where he like turns around in his briefcase, hits two guys, you know, and he just narrowly avoids getting a knife through well, his th- face. But but this- there's no there's no blood. No one no one gets you know has a trickle out from their nose or anything it's just sort of his coat is a little dirty well see that's you guys are looking at the wrong genre history there the the incompetent who accidentally takes out a room full of guys this is clouseau that that's Hmm. clouseau that's jerry lewis that's 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 where that's coming from that's a time-honored tradition I don't have a problem with that. The the part that the only part that troubled me was there were a couple of times in the movie where, you know, somebody was in an explosion or something and I thought, wait a minute, he just straight up killed that guy <laughs> yeah. and didn't notice. <laughs> yeah, you know, when, where's the moment like, oh my God, I'm just a cartoonist. I murdered a guy, you know? And yeah. Obviously you don't want that in the movie. You don't want to derail the fun train, but it But I mean, you set me up, up the Prognoviachar, like they're like the car equivalent of Darth Vader. Oh, they're, as like, soon an, as, they're as, like an evil version of Dom's gang working for the KGB. <laughs> yes. As soon as they roll on screen, it's like Darth Vader stepping through the door at the beginning of of mm-hmm. Star Wars, where you're like, oh, they're in black, they're bad guys. Yeah. You know? Oh, they yeah, have... there's no question. They deserve right. a bad end, and you know their bad end is coming. I gotta just, say, they're... it seemed like Woody should have been a little more shaken up over it. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> again, I think that if you go there, you kind of reframe the entire movie. I think you're absolutely right about you can't, you, it's like you have to blow it up, and you kind of have to hand wave it, because if you don't, uh, mm. this movie just became a lot darker, and that's not what this movie is. Yeah. No. Um, but I do love the 
the fact that uh, was it Morovich is the head of this group yeah. of elite drivers, and they all have these like matching black Porsches. Yeah, uh, they have they're li- a little modified, right? The the tails, the the spoilers on the back, and the bumpers on the front look a little weird, but they're definitely like Porsche. 911s maybe i'm well, not a car guy but they're know, definitely porsches nothing says undercover kgb operation like your team of matching black custom porsches <laughs> yeah with a, with nobody's a... gonna notice that yeah in, you know eastern europe where the roads are four feet wide <laughs> but, but remember like woody is taking natalia through that that yugoslavian town and they hear like on the edge of their hearing that rumble of their cars and one of them just goes Morovich. And they all just it's like like the piano player in a saloon. Everyone rushes and disappears. It's like this guy tears through this town all the time. And who knows how many people they've seen him kill. And I kind of love that that Morovich, you know, he's kind of the Bond henchman of this movie. Yeah. So all of these guys have sort of the matching black driving outfits. Black, you know, black helmets with sort of the 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 tinted thing visor. You can't mm-hmm. see their face, but Morovich, he has like a silver visor because one of his eyes is like a ball bearing. It's like a silver <laughs> eye. And it's like when he's in polite company, he wears an eye patch. But most of the time, like you'll like dramatically flip up this uh, driving helmet and reveal his his silver eye, and it just <laughs> makes this loud click sound that I love. And it's he just takes every opportunity to scare the shit out of a child by turning at them dramatically and opening up his visor. Um, stuff like that I love. You got a gimmicky henchman. Um, he has like the coolest of their matching cars. His has a slightly bigger spoiler and it has like this little radar dish on the hood. Of course. Of course. Oh, I love it. It's just turning around. Oh. We haven't even talked about that. I think the probably the most well recognized, most recognizable actor is plays the, um, I guess... Uh, Morovich is the heavy, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, he's so like the, the odd the, the, job. The, the, bo- the, bo- the big boss is Oliver Reed, who, I mean, he is the world's greatest asshole in khakis in this movie, for sure. For a, for a guy who looks just pissed. Like, the look on his face is just, like, simmering, constant simmering rage, and, like, you know, the next time that something happens, when the door closes, he's just going to murder you with a pistol, you know? I mean, the job of a bad guy in a movie like this is your job is to sit at a desk and scream at men who have failed to kill the hero. And he does that really well. It's and I true. also like his Russian accent. And, <laughs> well, and, first of all, Oliver Reed is a first class actor. You know, he probably has a better career pedigree than the rest of the cast of this movie combined. Sure. Like old school Shakespearean everything. But I did a little reading after I watched this, and it turned out Oliver Reed genuinely was pissed off about being in this movie. Mm. He, he was not digging it. He he, he looks he looks a little bit like, uh, can we get this take over with so I can go back to the hotel room and have, and have drink, some scotch drink heavily yes, yes he was yep. very difficult and uh, and barbara carrera especially he did not care for he thought she was wooden and untalented and this is apocryphal but it's been confer- i found it in a couple of different sources apparently in the bit where they're in the helicopter together and she's terrified of him he felt that she didn't look terrified enough so he opened the door oh my god chopper and she literally that that fight and she hit him 
and it hurt him. And you can tell yeah. that it hurt that she genuinely hits him and he's genuinely in pain, but he's a trooper, so he finished the take. That's one but of that two was scenes why. That, that, that where they're together where they have a reaction that seems genuine because the other one is I think he's after she's came back, they're sitting down somewhere and uh uh I don't remember, I can't remember what she said, but she's like, What do you want from me? Like out of just out of nowhere, she goes, uh the Natalia character goes just at like a two to like a nine immediately. Yeah. And you you know part of it is like well i you you haven't emoted like that for the entire movie and i guess mm. it sort of lends a little bit of danger to the, the krakow character but yeah for sure oliver reed is doing i wouldn't i mean is he chewing scenery here i'm not sure he really isn't i think he's just sort of he's, strolling around in a white tuxedo white white suit and delivering but he does exude a, a, not a lot of menace for a disney villain for I sure mean, yeah he's, this is he's one of the people. scarier disney villains i've seen the the I don't know. It was, uh, when did Disney start with, uh, what was it? Touchstone? Was that the impression? That was Splash? later. Yeah, it was later, but I was going to say yeah. this is almost like a proto Touchstone. Right. Yeah, Touchstone is a good way because Disney, of all the movie companies, even as a kid, I mean, everyone tries to have their sort of corporate image. No one liked Disney because Disney has an idea of what a Disney movie is. So if they want to put out something that is a rated R, like, say, I don't know, a Pretty Woman, they're not going to put it out through Disney Pictures. They're going to put it out under Touchstone right. because Disney means something. So, and this was before some guy in the office evolved the idea that, you know what, we're a corporation, we can have different brands. Right. You know, at the time, whatever movie they put out was going to be a Disney movie, period, the end. It mm -hmm. was going to be rated G, period, the end. This was non-negotiable. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, I mean and, I'm trying to think of, this was, so the, the early, probably the nearly the first half of... Disney uh, in the in the 80s was like bomb after bomb after bomb. It was a Disney dark age. Yeah. And I mean, I just I just for yeah. the first time watched The Black Cauldron, which was 1985. And even then you were I was I'm, oh, I love animation. I was really impressed by what it was. But I also knew that the parts of it that were recognizably Disney were in conflict with the sort of we need to have a darker story, darker the Don story. Bluthian kind of element. Yeah. It feels exactly like a Don right. Bluth Disney film. And this is to me, this is the same sort of thing, which is like, well, we want to make a James Bond movie because James Bond movies are incredibly popular. We know we, you know the formula of a James Bond movie, um, but we can't be that dark because it's a Disney movie. It, even mm -hmm. up until the credit sequence, which I think is the biggest bait and switch of this movie, is the title sequence. You're just seeing shots of Paris, and then you're seeing an animated version of Condor Man sort of flying around and getting his wings caught and landing on a taxi and stuff. And I kept thinking, what if this were like a Roger Rabbit movie where Condor Man was just an animated guy over live action? It would have been more fun for That's me. That's not the bait and switch. The bait and switch is making you think it's a superhero movie until you're 10 minutes into it and committed already. No. Yeah. It's I a think, spy movie. Yeah, I think that's the thing is that it's definitely about a guy who makes the CIA turn him into a superhero, but the superhero elements are fairly few and far between. Mm -hmm. And I wonder... If this is just a draft of the script and like, well, we could do James Bond, but superheroes are more colorful. They're mm -hmm. more bombastic. So when we have a supercar, we want it to be like bright yellow with a Condor logo on it. And we want him to take off with a pair of Condor. When he actually breaks out his Condor Man costume at the end of the movie to do the big escape, we want it to be colorful. It's like brown and orange and yellow mm -hmm. where... 
James Bond, for the most part, is pretty, I mean, he's still a spy. He's like the flashiest, not hidden spy in the world. <laughs> right. But he's still wearing, he's still driving cars that are like black or, or silver. Um, so I wonder if this was an element that was added to the script to to make it more Disney, to make it more colorful, to mm. have an element of it that's more approachable to kids. Where I think uh, the James Bond stuff is the 90% of the actual substance where the superhero stuff is kind of a veneer that's sort of put on top of it, where he does have a Condor Man boat and a Condor Man uh, supercar that has lasers and, and jets that shoot fire. Oh my fire. god, lasers. Which is, so this is <laughs> one of the, obviously, children uh, children of our age, and undoubtedly your age too, know that when you want to take a story that, uh, there was a they did this in, I think All Dogs Go to Heaven as well, didn't they? Yeah, there's a laser gun the in laser, there. Where instead of make, you taking a gun that was supposed to shoot bullets, if it shoots lasers, it's is therefore less threatening and so in this mm-hmm. movie the bad guys have some kind of ballistics in their cars and boats that just sort of you don't see a projectile you just see like a plume of smoke and uh you know apparently in 19 in the year 1980 the cia had leapt forward several generations of weapons technology such that portable lasers were easily mountable on a car or and a so, boat or yeah or a boat and now there's just like pervasive laser ballistics <laughs> that are happening in the world well actually and that's and that's far i guess far less gruesome than you know a fucking giant machine gun that's throwing out 30 rounds nobody's gonna get killed like sonny corleone in this movie well, you you don't want to give condor man james bond's aston martin where people actually you know bleed and die that's, yeah. that's not what no. you want but laser technology at the point you yeah they were that compact it's just that all they were were uh you know things to tease your cat with they weren't they weren't weren't, they just were light they they weren't weapons right the only laser in cinema that i'm aware of that actually acts like a real laser and would hurt people the way a real laser would would be oddly enough the one that goldfinger used right yeah that's a real laser Hmm. And it's also um, mounted on this giant machine. It's yeah. not something you can carry in your hand like Han Solo. Yeah, but it's more like it's much more like a a blowtorch. Yes, it's not a like a weapon that fires bursts of anything. I, I couldn't help thinking of whether or not the. I mean, I think primarily having lasers be sort of his weapon of choice was one to make it sort of less violent and threatening, and two, I mean, they have. You can definitely hear Star Wars laser sound effects when, yeah. especially in the boat chase. You can see that. So maybe part of it was like, oh well, if you want an exciting battle in a in a popular movie, use Star Wars. You know, Star Wars lasers. Well, but again, if you shoot somebody with a bullet, it kind of requires you to either slap your hand over the wound or squib somebody, <laughs> and you don't have to really squib somebody with a laser. Apart no. from that, it's a kids' movie, and lasers are cool. Yes, that's, that's when true. when kids are thinking about a gun, they want a ray gun. They don't want a Glock. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> unless I mean, if your kid wants a Glock, he needs therapy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to talk. I'd, I'd look into sure. who he's been hanging around with. But I, I really want to get into Woody Wilkins' publications and uh, the fact that he seems to be Woody Wilkins. The most successful self-published comic book author in the world. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. He's he's Dave Sim. He's Dave Sim he's without Dave a Sim, lot of the problems. <laughs> Dave Sim, secret agent. Oh, so we do have the the Bond level misogyny. Um, <laughs> so wait, I've got a. So, so we're talking about him. So he's a real comic book artist. He's got successful. 
he's you know he's in Paris, but he's clearly like still drafting comic books and sending them off to his publisher while he's here because that's what he does, right? Um, well, he what, is his own publisher. At the top oh, of the book he, says, "What do you Woodrow he, Wilkins Publications?" He has to be his own publisher because no publisher would put up with him. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> he's like the that's, Hunter S. Thompson of comic oh book my publishers. God. Comic book. He, I mean, he I, jumped off the Eiffel Tower with a homemade wingsuit <laughs> to prove that it was plausible to happen in a comic book story. You know, Don McGregor, who originally wrote the the Black Panther story that became the movie used to go round and round with his editors at Marvel over just simple things like what what black people would or wouldn't do in Harlem. I can't even imagine what it would have been like if he had demanded that Marvel fly him to Africa <laughs> so he can map a plausible location for Wakanda. That's kind of the equivalent of what Woody yeah. is doing. Yeah, Woody, Woody potentially kills himself. Uh, this is almost a Darwin Award that happens at the beginning of the movie <laughs> so that he can prove that a character with in a comic book could do something in real life. And if there's one thing that superhero comic books do is stuff that can't happen in real life. Right. I mean, Batman, that is his, his bread and butter is doing shit that nobody can do. And I find it kind of crazy because you know what you can't do? You can't meet a deadline if you're dead. <laughs> and... He doesn't want to let down the kids. You don't want to let down the kids by having their parents have to read to them from the newspaper <laughs> that your favorite comic book creator just jumped off of the Eiffel Tower and splatted into a bus. Hey, this was like a 10-minute controversy in the 70s when Evil Knievel was going to jump the mm. the Snake River. You know, there were... Mm. There was a lot of blowback from parents groups and stuff like this is a bad example because, you know, there were Evil Knievel toys and, yeah. and stuff. And, you know, he was... I, I don't exactly know how this happened because he always struck me as kind of an idiot even before he turned out to be a complete right-wing misogynist douchebag. But <laughs> um, but apparently he got himself some toy deals with Ideal and stuff and suddenly he was a kid's hero. Mm. Yeah. Well, he you wore know. red, white, and blue and he jumped over things in a motorcycle, which kind of touches the two parts of your brain, which is that's kind of ridiculous and that's awesome. <laughs> and <laughs> those two things, when you mix them together, just make the six-year-old in my brain happy. And it's a part of my brain that I'm never going to grow out of. And that's kind of the, the part of the this movie touches. So is speaking of the, your six-year-old brain, because also I know that uh, Superman takes up a big portion of Mike's six-year-old brain. Um, they're the only reference to another really existing superhero property, and this is Superman, and he's debating uh, Condor Man. Woody is debating with... Um, what is his name? Harry. Harry. Woody is debating with Harry in his palatial hotel room in Paris, you know, which is insane. I'm sure how many thousands of francs per night he had to pay for that. Um, he says Superman's got the Big Apple all sewn up because this is his justification for, you know, I should I need to go be in Paris to draw Paris. Um, mm -hmm. Wait, wait, I, I'm not understanding this context of this. Does he mean Superman, the character, inhabits Metropolis, which is like the Big Apple, therefore I don't want to set him in, in an American city? Or is Superman a real character who exists in the Condor Man universe, so he can't have Condor Man be that his actually existing Condor Man be in the proximity of the real Superman. I took it as Superman let's, being a comic book character. Let's all pause for a moment <laughs> and enjoy the notion of Woody trying to do a Condor Man tryout in Metropolis. And Superman <laughs> swoops in and explains to him why this is a terribly misguided career choice for him. It's like, son, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> I just, this, is, this is like the earliest, this is, I mean, clearly... 
the in the lexicon of of comic book characters you can mention post the Richard Donner movie Superman is the the superhero character that you mention um but also like it's just part of a string of times that Superman gets name dropped because if you're going to if you're going to say a comic book superhero that everyone will know it's going to be Superman. But also the Christopher Reeve movies are coming out at the time this thing is released. Right. So I mean right. he just Superman just had a movie like 3 years ago and he probably had one the same I think Superman 81, 2 81 Superman 2 came out in 81. And this is 81 as well. So Superman 2 might have just been in theaters. So oh, man makes... this movie wouldn't so much better had Terrence Stamp uh, been Zod in here and Zod would have landed in the middle of Paris. So uh, I was just thinking about just how how amazingly productive uh, Woody Wilkins is because he seems to be like Jack Kirby style drawing like five comic book series at once despite the fact that he's traveling all around the globe and trying out death traps <laughs> and potentially not coming back to finish the book. Um, so some of the other characters that they mention, one of them is Gopher Boy. They mentioned Bazooka Boy and Sponge Man. <laughs> but he actually says in a later scene when he's trapped in prison and Natalia doesn't know that he's just a comic book artist pretending to be an operative, that under the name, because he, he, when he goes to Istanbul, he says that he's he's an actual agent and his, his right. code name is Condor Man. And um, when they're in prison together, he goes, oh, Gopher Boy, what would you do now? <laughs> and I just, it made me think, what did this guy do to test out Gopher Boy? <laughs> I just want to Sponge Man actually is a more scary thing to speculate about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But yeah, it could have been worse, I suppose. It could have been Sponge Bath Man. But oh, <laughs> that would have been, that would definitely just, would have been a self-published geez, comic. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god. I I will say I love the Henry Mancini score for this movie. That's the gentleman who gave us the Pink Panther. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh which I I love it. It's this big swooping, you know, da 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 dun da dun dun, which is something I love from superhero themes that I don't think we've done in a while except for maybe the Avengers theme. Yeah, there's there's sufficient bombast. I mean, clearly Disney could hire someone like Henry Mancini and it helps. It does help. Um I I just come back to the fact that just sort of dramatically the movie is it's slow and plotting and it's hard for me to grasp onto it's made it is made better for the by the fact that um i think the relationship between woody and harry are is great yeah. i think it's there's a, there is one unfortunate moment of gay panic where Woody is asking a favor of of uh, of Harry, and he's like he he's like, oh, you're beautiful, and, hu and hugs him, and then Harry says, Shh, what does he say? He says Shh, someone will notice or something. Yeah. Like you should be ashamed of hugging your best friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess if if we need to talk about this, the problematic elements, I think it's the disguises. Yes, the disguises are a little uncomfortable. Let's let's use the word that they don't use and just say he dresses like a Romani person. <laughs> yes. uh, they use the other word, which I'm enough of a white guy to round up and say that's probably a slur now yeah and, um yes and <laughs> i am reliably informed that yeah. yes it is yeah so i'm not going to use that word uh but you know it's a little uncomfortable where all of his disguises have a fake nose right. and i'm like right. thank god when he get he infiltrates the party to rescue uh, natalia from krakow's men that he goes undercover as like an Arab sheikh who mm -hmm. is there having won a bunch of money at the casino and I guess is just the seventh richest man in the world. And 
as problematic as it was, I was like, you know, thank God he was not in brownface. Right. Because <laughs> he could have been. I'm kind of sad that we we missed that scene. I'm because so he he's at he's in Monte Carlo, which is for anyone who's in the know is like the place that the world's wealthiest people when they want to go and hobnob in a European style to wager a lot of money, they go to Monte Carlo. And I'm kind of sad that we didn't have the Again, kind of scene see? you have in James Bond, which is he sits down at a table and you he fudges around and he blusters, but then he he closes the bank. You know, he shuts down the he shuts down the uh, the tables. It would have been kind of funny to do a baccarat scene because nobody understands baccarat, right. <laughs> and have him accidentally win because no one else at the table knows how to play either. Did you guys see when Daniel Craig hosted Saturday Night Live last night? Mm-mm. They did what was purportedly a, a deleted scene from No Time to Die where Bond is in the casino with the woman, except the casino, even though it's allegedly a European casino, everybody's acting like it's a Vegas craps table. <laughs> and they're really vulgar, and there's a weird little old lady, and it was just, and Daniel Craig is like really leaning into it, you know, because he wins, and he's like cheering and acting drunk and stupid and <laughs> acting like the way a real Vegas winner would. <laughs> and see, that's the that's the scene that you're talking about. The Woody, Woody would have been that Vegas guy in a Monte Carlo right. casino, and it would have been hilarious. Right. But it probably... Probably would have been over the heads of the juvenile audience this thing is aimed at. Yeah. Uh, but even the, even the, that said, though, the thing that I, I think was even more over the heads of the audience was the shake. He's he's uh, he's masquerading as the shake, the seventh richest man in the world. He's he you see people on the balcony like clapping people in black tie and black dresses clapping. And then someone goes, oh, he's. What, I don't even, what does he say? He's broke the house's limit or something. Five million francs. Like, I don't think any kid understands what that means. I think I think what they if they wanted to do visual storytelling, it would have been he's at a table and then he gets this huge pile of chips, you yeah. know, and then they, they sort of rake it all forward. I think that would have been better. I think it was probably a production thing. Yeah. I think it, it was like we can't film on the we're not going to close down the casino, but we can, you know, section off the front of the lobby for a half a day, but we can't be on the casino floor. It probably was something like that. One yeah. of the things I read is that even though it was Disney, it was a fairly tight budget. Yeah. And but I shows. wanted to go back to something we were talking about earlier. You guys are talking about problematic disguises, and that was actually where I was going before I was distracted by a shiny object. <laughs> we are we are not the audience for this. This is a juvenile movie. It's true. And the disguises work at a juvenile level. When you're talking about problematic disguises, I think of like the train scene in Trading Places. Oh, good yeah. God. Where, yes. you know, there's a rape joke with a gorilla. There's a rape <laughs> joke with a gorilla. Dad Aykroyd is in blackface. Right. There's, you know, right. all kinds of things that are just I mean, yes, not this, cool. This isn't the worst offender, but now it's sort of. You it, definitely need to say, ooh, that was rough. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah you wouldn't do it today, but it's forgivable back then. I um, We're talking like a scale know, from zero to breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you want to know what's not forgivable about, for this movie? I mean, there's, for me, plenty of things, but the single one. The inclusion of the Enterprise Red Alert klaxon. Yes, yes. I was like, don't ever use it. Don't oh, use it. I was so fucking happy to hear that. <laughs> You're like, why does this crazy uh, mansion and Ger- German mansion or whatever it was, why do they? Why does their alarm system sound just like the bridge of the Enterprise? Thank you. <laughs> because there's a library. And yeah. they all use the same library. I, it was I hope 1981. That, that sound designer guy, oh. I hope that guy get, got paid a fraction of a few cents. I guarantee you the person who put that in there hoped no one would notice <laughs> and just went, 
Oh, you know, this is for me. <laughs> that, that's what I, because I mean, you, listen again. You're making me feel old. The all the beeps and whirs and clicks on the bridge of the original Kirk Spock Enterprise mm-hmm. were in everything. Mm-hmm. The only things that didn't cross over from show to show were the red alert klaxons, which is why I was surprised. Yeah. Actually. And the the little the beeper that goes across the bottom of the view screen. Mm-hmm. I can't make that sound, but you all know what <laughs> right. it is. Yep. It's kind of a uh, it kind of, yeah. kind of sounds like sonar a little bit. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love sure. it. They don't use it in the movies except for the end of Star Trek Four when they get on the bridge of oh, the new yeah. Enterprise, and it's it, it's like that new car smell. You're like, oh yeah, that sound. That, I don't know what that is, but that's the Enterprise. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I'm just now that I'm thinking about this, it's this is not apropos of Condor Man, but um, the fact that the production value maybe that does that maybe this does have an analog because of the low production value. There was something about the atmosphere created by. The sound, and then the almost ever-present score in a Star Trek in a Star Trek show, where even though they were really padding out time by showing those reverse shots of something not very interesting on the view screen or whatever, mm-hmm. it still added a sense of like I feel like I'm here, and it's weird and eerie to be looking at this right now. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't <laughs> the red alert sound did not play the same way I think it should have in. In that scene but in Condor spe- Man. But speaking but- of screens, the <laughs> interior of the Condor Man car is fucking great. <laughs> I'd say that the Condor Man car is better than every Batmobile except for Adam West's. Wow. That's that's how cool of a supercar it is, because it has not only those touchscreen buttons on this, like, multi-screen console, but it's got that, like, future 80s font on yeah, it. Yeah, I love that. I love that font. And it just, like, you can hit a bunch of buttons. That's going to be on my headstone, I think. <laughs> you know, yes. That- <laughs> yes, for sure. That's pretty great. He's, there was a, it's, it's, he's touching the buttons, beep, 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 and then, uh, isn't there an enter? There's an enter button, and yeah. that's how he gets it to and he's got two different, lasers to start. he got the two different variations of lasers, and I think... I think they only work once. Uh, you can use one trick once, so you're not just constantly no. shooting lasers out of the back of your car. Because <laughs> I totally would, man. Yes. It would be my go-to. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, his car turns into a boat. He gets to do all sorts of cool things. I mean, I really love the car chases in this movie. I love the locations for it, where it's these sort of mountain roads where... You know, the bad guys split off into different paths and they know these roads enough that they know how to mm-hmm. regroup or maybe cut right. him off. You know, the famous drive under a truck with logs on it. Yep. All of that stuff. No, those are those they, are tropes that never get they old clearly for me. had this the whoever the stunt the stunt guy was, the um, knew what they were doing, and they didn't make a boring uh, chase in the entire movie. So, probably the only boring chase might have been the foot chase where they're all handcuffed together. And even so, they're handcuffed together and they're running away from the Pragno- Pragnoviac and they run into the middle of a wedding procession in some Italian town. And uh, of course, this is just campy and goofy because they start a fight yeah. to get away from the bad guys. I kind of love that. And, El- and El- Elliot, this was Elliot's favorite part of the whole movie because <laughs> you're seeing the priest in front who's just sort of dazed by what's happening and he's he can't keep control of all these people fighting. And there are two altar boys who cannot help from smiling. And you can't tell if it's like, that was part of the direction from the director to the kids to be like, this is funny because people are fighting yeah, people at a wedding fighting, or if they like the kids are just smiling because they're on a film set or whatever. But Ellie thought that was the best part. It's pretty that, great. Like, 
Because we would. I mean, I <laughs> almost think that it would be direction because that's why that scene is there. That's yeah. why it's uh, there. There is no kid in the world that hasn't been dragged to a formal event that wishes a spy chase <laughs> with guns wouldn't yes. fucking interrupt and blow up the whole thing because <laughs> you just can't stand being in this stuffy room one more goddamn minute. But it's Please, just, I feel somebody sorry for- come and shoot the place up. You know, I'm not. I'm not sorry that the Prognoviach guys got wasted. I mean, obviously they were. Was there homicidal? Homicidal maniacs is what she says, what Natalia says. But I do kind of love the fact that they get kind of beaten up by a bunch of Italians at a wedding, <laughs> which is pretty great because they go in they there. They blew up that poor guy's life. Come on. That, those guys' lives yeah. are wrecked. And yeah. after that fight's over, after they're done beating up these, these Soviet spies, <laughs> they're going to realize that woman who broke up the wedding is gone, and they're going to start asking questions and trying to find out what the fuck is happening. But I love is that they're, they're being cornered. They're sitting at the wedding, and Natalia gets up and goes... You know, like, oh, you know, Pietro or whatever his name is. And he goes, I'm, you know, he's already married to me. Come home to the children. And the, 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 the groom is just like, this woman's lying. And she's like, oh, come home. We brought, you know, Uncle So and so with us. Uncle and, Luigi. Uh, Uncle Luigi. <laughs> and points to uh, Morovich. And that guy goes and takes a swing at Morovich. And it just, and the guy punches the crap out of the groom. Morovich just starts kicking his ass. And then all the family members dogpile Morovich. <laughs> it's, it's pretty great. I mean, it's, it's it's tropey as shit, but I it's again there are certain tropes that I don't get sick of. Well, yeah. that was actually a point I was going to raise to you guys because I I've said more than once we're not the audience for this. Have you considered because this is a recurring thing on radio versus the Martians? Is you know I've seen this. I want to see something new. I want to see. Have you guys considered that maybe you're jaded <laughs> that that maybe no. that maybe your familiarity with pop culture is so huge that seeing a band play the hits just isn't enough for you is the podcast been leading to this moment no i mean um, i think we talked about this in sort of my taste before i think well, we talked we talked about joker before mm-hmm. i'd say that if you watch enough movies if you see enough tv you know where the pieces that things come from and so it sort of ruins your ability to lose yourself in it well, for sure yeah because there i don't think there was anything in condor man that came as a surprise to me no it's but I, machine, I, gun, I, the machine gun cane i can't well how funny that was actually there are the two gags that i like the most is the machine gun cane that he loses control of and he's clearly just doing goofy slapstick mm-hmm. with that machine gun cane and and the one the one thing that i genuinely laughed out loud at was the istanbul surprise is that oh, what it's the, called the istanbul oh, yeah. express the istanbul express which is an explosive alcoholic beverage and the effect is really good and he burps uh-huh. he burps a giant fireball and then holds his mouth and goes apparently he, he orders yeah. a triple nobody orders a triple <laughs> but what i what i love is that he goes into istanbul he goes into this this restaurant to meet with Natalia to exchange papers that's his courier mission and the fact that their their drink is called the istanbul express led me to believe that this is like the turkish equivalent of a tgi fridays <laughs> yeah and that this is a chain <laughs> well see it just it did i have to admit that one did surprise me because i was expecting him just to get plastered he was it was yeah. just you know it was like a long island iced tea nobody orders a triple you know that's no way but they bring it out and it's um, just on fire. Yeah, it's flaming and he can't put the fire out. That made me laugh. He finally ends up, he blows and it comes back on like one of those novelty candles. And he right. finally puts his hat over it. <laughs> and, <laughs> so that I thought was the gag. And then, you know, it was Chekhov's gun fires twice when he uh, burps and it's on fire. 
<laughs> yeah, that funniest, paid off. Funniest that was bit funny. in the movie for me, for sure. <sighs> so, but where I was going before, before again, I was distracted. Is <laughs> the, uh, the 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 uh, the fact that this movie there's really nothing innovative about the beats of the story. We all know where it's going. We sure. all know where it's going to land. Sure. I don't think that's a criticism. I don't I, either. I, I don't uh, think we're allowed to say, you know, if you set out to do a thing and you do it, it's like, well, why didn't you do this other thing that I haven't seen a million times that I would like better? That's that's not a criticism. I, I think, I mean, the, 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 and, the other criticism, and this is not mine, this is, because uh, I did track down the Siskel and Ebert. Uh, this movie, to, by the way, was panned. Oh, yeah, it was, it's, it's. 25% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's, t- it, it would bombed or whatever. I mean, Siskel and Ebert, they had a. Their big thing was, well, you know, that this is not, there's no novelty in here. It's just recycling uh, bits from other movies. And they could not get over the fact that when he's first flying over the Eiffel Tower, that you can see the wires, him flying or whatever, and be like, well, to me, that's not a big complaint because this movie looks like that, that kind of cheap. There's, right? a, there's a charm, I think, in that. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I think we overplay novelty a little much. I think that what we end up seeing and what, I might actually be complaining about when we talk about sort of hackneyed things is that we see a bunch of stuff get done and it's a copy of a copy of a copy. So like with that, it's bad quality that Mm. you don't even do it in a fun way or in a charming way a lot of the time. And I think that this movie has a lot of charm. There's a lot of love and sincerity that went into it that you don't see in a lot of, a lot of big budget things that are replaying. This this movie is a spoof, right? I mean, this is not, this is not like a deconstruction, like a Mel Brooks movie, like a Mel Brooks spy movie, yeah. movie but it's a spoof of of spy movies in the James Bond vein. Um, and in that way, you get a pass for having cliches, having tropes, having things that look like they're very familiar from a James Bond movie that you would had been released the, the year before. Yeah, you know? see, the joke is that you're putting this awkward, dorky guy into James Bond situations and that you're seeing the stuff that you've seen play out with this suave, competent guy play out with this sort of awkward, overly enthusiastic guy. Which is absolutely my favorite thing about this. Hmm. And it is, believe it or not, a genre. It's yeah. not just Clouseau. The thing that I kept thinking of, and I'm not even sure if you guys know this, there was a, a pair of French movies with Pierre Richard, uh, the tall blonde man with one black shoe. And mm. uh, it was remade here in America with Tom Hanks as just the man with one red shoe. Oh, yeah. yeah. And oh, wow. um, there were two of them, the, the tall blonde man, the return of the tall blonde man. It was the same thing, a completely innocent guy swept up into... Uh, the world of, of James Bond espionage. And what he was was kind of a goofball Jerry Lewis style pratfalling violinist in an orchestra. <laughs> and as as part of an operation, um, the uh, the French, I don't know if it was the Sûreté or whoever it was, but the French spy guys um, were having an internal faction war and and one of them got the idea to pretend that there was a big operation that his rival didn't know about and he fingered the violinist as being the top agent in the operation so the the other guy would shadow the violinist and all the inept stupid jerry lewis antics this guy was doing were interpreted by the spy master as being clever espionage right. 
Right. This is brilliant. This man is incredible. <laughs> and, I think, didn't they, didn't... Uh, and Morovich does that, too. It's like, I don't know who this guy is, but he's incredible. Right. That was what I kept thinking of during Condor Worm. Condor Worm's got a big, big part of that vibe going on, this, this dorky cartoonist. And then the part where Oliver Reed finally figures it out and he's standing there with all his henchmen with the comic books in his hand pointing to you know like how dumb are you this is this is what happened to you this is what he did to you this is what he did to you you all i mean it's just like i am ashamed of all of you that's my favorite line reading from oliver reed where he's like he has not secreted he has a writer of comic books and it's, it's really, he slams that comic down on the table i love that so much it is, i think that might have been my favorite scene in the movie is just the the sheer foam at the mouth contempt <laughs> Oliver Reed has for comics, for Condor Man, and most of all for his staff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's just so angry. Oh man! So we've we've talked a lot about the idea of remakes, and of course Disney is doing remake after remake after they're they are playing the hits right now. Uh, I mean, last year there were three separate. It was like. God, what was it? The Lion King, Aladdin, and Dumbo all had live action remake. Well, mm-hmm. Lion King live action. Photorealistic. Yeah, photorealistic yeah. animation. Um, all coming out. And I'm thinking, well, Condor Man is sitting right there. And I know that when uh, Disney bought Marvel, that Steve Wacker, who was the editor of The Amazing Spider Man, it was like desperate. <laughs> Please let us do a Condor Man comic book. We really want to do that. And there's some love for this character. I mean, um, Condor Man actually makes a cameo in a Toy Story short that yeah. came out called Small Fry, <laughs> where it's about Happy Meal toys. And one of the Happy Meal toys is a little Condor Man in a Condor Man car. <laughs> um, so there is some love for this. So if we got a Condor Man remake, who could you see playing Woody Wilkins? Oh, because I've got a couple couple options. Adam Driver. Adam Driver? <laughs> have him play something that would be so unlike Kylo Ren would be kind of cool. Actually, I was shocked at seeing Barbara Carrera in this. Yeah. And to see her be so sweet. Yeah. I did not think that was in her wheelhouse. Barbara Carrera in the 80s was the girl that would peel it all off yeah. at the drop of a she hat. She was never, say never again, right? Yeah, she yeah. was Fatima Blush. Yeah. Um, yep. Even more, she was like the naked, perverted sex therapist in the Armand Santa Eye the Jury. Mm. Um, <laughs> then, then she was the evil bitch on Dallas for a season. She was, <laughs> she was always a villainous and always a psychotic villainous. Yeah, this one they, the, this one they definitely draft. She looks like a um, sort of nineteen forties, fifties noir. Uh, female lead is what she's yeah, just in her does. hairstyle, her lipstick, and the way she carries herself. But that's not even what I'm thinking of. What I'm thinking of is that when she talks about being in love with Woody, I actually believe it. Yeah, she, she does. She sells it. Yeah, she sells it. I did it. not think that she could. Yeah, and because it's it's obviously sort of the the hot lady falls for the dorky guy. Yeah. But I think there's a genuine. I think it's it's her it's Woody's enthusiasm and sincerity that comes comes through. He's kind of a dork, but he really means everything that he says. Um, I was thinking kind of a dork. He's Probably a total dork. <laughs> Probably in Barbara Carrera's case, it helped that he wasn't Oliver Reed. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so I was thinking, like, who could, imbo- who could embody that in a new movie? One of them I thought was Danny Pudi from Community. Could okay. be could be a good Woody Wilkins. Uh, another one I thought of, um, 
David Tennant, I think, could pull it off. <laughs> but the one that I kept coming back to, but Tennant's this mo- too old. Tennant's too it, old. It needs to be a young guy, somebody in his twenties. So the one that I thought of, but this would have been about fifteen to twenty years ago, would have been perfect. Is Bob Odenkirk back oh, yeah. in the day? Yeah, yeah. I think he would have been the because you have to have that enthusiasm. The mm-hmm. young Bob Odenkirk would have been perfect to play Woody Wilkins. But sadly, we're we're past we're, that yeah. point. So uh, if, if we're talking about re- recasting or refactoring this. There's only there's one there's one piece that I had. Can I make this movie? Can I fix part of this movie in my head? There's one thing that makes a lot less sense for me when because Woody has to be a comic book character who who is a fish out of water when he tries to be a spy. Well, the thing about it is, is aside from when he's drawing stuff at the beginning and when he designs the cars or whatever, you don't get a real sense of what parts that make him a good comic book writer will also make a good spy out of him um because he just telegraphs everything that he's going to do from his stories i think he enjoys he's obviously so good at doing makeup and disguises and so good at walking into a situation as a completely different person and oh i don't know impersonating a shake and like demolishing an entire casino in monte carlo he should be a stage actor Mm -hmm. he should have been the stage actor who was harry's friend who was doing a show at the time that he was there and Harry says, oh, I've got a friend who can make this handoff. And of course, an actor has the right kind of narcissistic bl- bluster to be like, oh, I can walk in and I can be a spy. I can do whatever. I think he should. I think he could have been. I think for me, this would have played better of him becoming this whole other persona if he was an actor and all of his sort of confidence was drawn from the fact that he, oh, of course, I've played such and such on the stage before. I've, you know, I got a, I've got an award for blah, 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 blah. That to me would have fixed it. But of course, as you said before, Disney wanted the the color, the, the, yeah, the had to have the superhero bit to make it more attractive to uh, a, a younger audience. Well, sure. first of all, I think they made the movie you're talking about. It was called Hero at Large with John Ritter. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen that one in a really long time. That's a lot of fun too. He plays an actor who get, who gets sort of Who's, made into a superhero. Oh, yeah. interesting. Okay, yeah, it's there's a big hero movie like equivalent to Superman the movie. And as part of the promotion, itinerant actors are hired, much like uh, Jonathan Frakes was Captain America early in his career, to do personal appearances. All, I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't know no. that? <laughs> no. Yeah, Frakes was... Man, they need to put Jonathan Frakes in a Captain America movie. <laughs> Not as Captain America, but um, as a villain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, anyway, so this movie is coming out, Captain Avenger, and Ritter is one of several actors doing personal theater appearances in the Captain Avenger costume. And um, And... It's been forever since I've seen it too, but basically he's on his way home. He's still in costume um, and he uh, he prevents a mugging in a, a mom and pop store and beats the shit out of a couple of muggers and it makes the news and the news, the shopkeeper guy says, no, it was Captain Avenger. It was, no, he was in the suit, <laughs> you know, and, right. uh, and so then Ritter starts the, the, the town of uh, the city is is galvanized by the idea of a hero that we have a hero that there, we really have captain avenger hmm. so ritter kind of talks himself into well maybe he'll just stop another mugging you know and then <laughs> right. and, and it keeps escalating right um and of course the movie people want a piece of this and so then they they try to they try to track him down so they can persuade him to do staged um crime fighting and so on. It's 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 is a this cute pre movie. Three's Company. 
John Ritter um, or during um, Three's I think Company? It's during Three's okay. Company, um, but it was right around then. He is such a he's a such a skinny dork. He could have been Woody also. Yeah, yeah. that would have been. I think yeah. um, he would have been great. Yeah, I think it was comic book writer Dan Slott li- listed that as one of his favorite superhero movies. I think it was Dan mm. Slott, Hero um, at Large, Hero at Large, yeah, and just mm. said this movie I like is it too. I I love I I loved it when I saw it as a kid, but again, put anyone in spandex in a cape when I was a kid, and I would love it. So I need to revisit <laughs> this movie. Um, well, it it would be worth revisiting. It uh, it has that thing that we have talked about on this show many times, which is unashamed, unapologetic optimism. Yeah, mm. which is a thing that you just don't. Yeah, I think people are afraid of it. They nobody wanted to admit that admit that they love it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people who make movies don't want to admit they like it, and they don't want to admit that other people like it. But when you put it out there, people eat it up. I'm telling you, this is a thing. This is why Hollywood culture annoys me because you're not making the movie for your hipster buddies down on the studio lot. You're making it for the general audience, and um, that's the the thing that Marvel got right that DC can't seem to get their heads around is like, for fuck's sake, you can go to Nigeria and show a kid Superman's S shield and he'll know what it is, who it belongs to and what that's about. Yeah. Make a movie for those kids. But but again, it's like, there's a scene in um, infinity war, the scene that brings captain America into the plot where the train's going by and you just see him in silhouette and he steps out of the shadows when I saw that in theaters, the crowd went apeshit. And I always thought going into the Marvel Cinematic Universe that Captain America was the hardest one to pull off because he wasn't traditionally cool in the way that we say things are cool. But people love him. They know when he shows up, he's going to fucking fix this stuff and he's going to beat up the crap out of those bad guys. And they're going to be sorry he showed up. He's not going to be mean. He's going to be just this guy that makes you feel kind of dirty for not being as nice as he is because he makes it seem cool to be a decent guy. Christopher Reeve had that too. And the, yeah. reason, the reason it works is because everybody else in the movie is a modern day jerk. Christopher, <laughs> Chris, no. Yeah, remember, it's true. The the hmm. template for this is Margot Kidder interviewing Christopher Reeve in her apartment. And she's very cynical. She's right. smoking. And, and he is not. And she slowly starts to feel embarrassed. Hmm. That's hmm. the template. And you really saw that play out on a large scale in The Winter Soldier. You see that arc with Natasha as the Black Widow. You see it with Sharon Carter. You even see it with Fury a little bit. You know, Steve Rogers, moral compass, never wavers. Everybody else slowly is drawn into his orbit. It's like, no, Captain Rogers is right. I'm with Captain Rogers. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And- he makes people around him better. I mean, that's the ultimate scene in in Winter Soldier. Is this like Shield analyst deciding to not yep. follow orders and do the horrible thing? And he feels brave to do that because Steve Rogers told him not to. And he knows that I know if this guy says it, it's got to be right. I'm gonna. He says Captain's orders, and I think you can you can draw that sort of in there. So it feels like we're kind of finished with the main conversation. So I got to ask everybody. Is Condor Man worth your time? Oh, uh, well, I, uh, I'm on uh, the spot now. Uh, uh, my hernia. Um, uh, I probably I would I will see it again inevitably, 
purely because now my six and a half year old loves this movie, which it's good. I mean, you win, Mike. Congratulations. <laughs> you win. Are you happy now? <laughs> uh, I, I won't. Um, I won't choose it to if I'm going to revisit something, I'll watch, you know, The Lighthouse again, just because that's what I want to do. with. I want to see Robert Pattinson pleasuring himself to a carved mermaid object is what I would rather. But it's a fine movie. It's fine. Wow. It's that's not a for me. Little TMI there. <laughs> <laughs> what else would you get out of The Lighthouse? Well, um, you, Robert Pattinson killing a seagull. Yes. <laughs> William Defoe talking like a pirate. Yes. Uh, wow. I'm all amped for this movie now. <laughs> it's a great movie. It's fucking great. <laughs> it's my, favorite, my favorite movie of 2019. Um, the, no, it's God a fine movie. Yeah. It's a fine movie. Condor Man is fine. Um, I... <laughs> I, I there is I think just like my ten year old self. Once the main credit scene ends and there's no more like cool, hilariously goofy, yahahahooey animated Condor Man character flying around in this movie, it loses a little bit of its luster. But I can I concede I there is some things that are great and unique about this movie. It's just not an amazing movie. It's a good movie. I thought it was cute. I thought it was fun. Is it worth my time? I don't. I think you need a kid to watch it with. Mm. If you're not a kid yourself, you need you need a kid's eye for it. I don't have that. I don't. My kid's eye has been pretty. My inner child gets a workout. Um, you know, I am not in danger ever of losing touch with my inner child. But Condor Man, just for me as a 58 year old movie going guy it's not it wouldn't be one that i'd go for unless i had like my little nephew over or something then it would be it's not for me it's not i am not the audience but yeah it's it's worth it i think it's good it's cute and fun and well crafted for the most part well for mike, the most part for the most part mike you did it condor man this week and then next week Octopussy. Oh, octopussy. <laughs> I thought yes. you were going to say the lighthouse. No, yeah. Or the lighthouse. Oh, uh, don't show a kid the lighthouse. Um, I, yeah, I'd say, yeah, I'd say this movie is worth it. And I feel a certain sense of validation and more confidence going into this answer because of your son's reaction to it. <laughs> because that just feels like, yes, we got one. Um, yeah, I, I think that if you saw this movie as a kid the way that I did, I think it gets its hooks in you. And it got its hooks in me to the degree that I saw it as like a five-year-old and I didn't see it again until maybe a year and a half ago. And I was terrified to revisit this movie for the affection that I had for it. And I did not want to lose that. And I think that if you're somebody who did see it as a kid, that affection is sort of there and you don't want that to get damaged. Um, I mentioned that we were doing this movie to Piper and her face lit up. Nice. <laughs> because she was one of those kids who rented this from the library on VHS. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think this movie's a lot of fun. It's, like I mentioned, it's a good entry-level Bond film. I think that a kid would love the shit out of it. Um, I am madly in love with the scene at the end with the reveal where he throws off the shake costume. And he's got the Condor Man outfit and he unfurls <laughs> the wings. It's such wonderful, dorky glory that it's hard for me. I can't be objective about this movie. And I can just admit there, I have a massive bias. Well, we all knew that coming in, Mike. Yeah. You, you made that really clear. <laughs> I, I think most that, of our comments have been made today with the thought of let's not hurt my <laughs> this, this is a it. vulnerable place for oh us. it is this is it's it's kind of like i've uh, it's i don't i'm not embarrassed of this movie but i feel weirdly protective of this movie um 
I, I think it's great. I think it's a sort of movie you can show a kid. I think a lot of older superhero fans, especially now that we have an embarrassment of riches, might think there's not enough superhero material in it. Mm-hmm. If you go into it knowing that it's mostly kind of a Bond spoof with superhero stuff in it, that's probably the best way to approach it. Um, I Well, this is is this on Disney Plus now? It is not on Disney oh, Plus. Oh, I was um, going to say this is it's time to have a resurgence, but apparently Disney doesn't want to put it on. No, well, I mean, it's I, not on DVD currently. It's out of print. It last went on in print in like 2002. Jesus. Um, it was only available for a long time through the Disney Movie Club, which I think was a subscription thing where you would get DVDs in the mail, mm-hmm. mostly for movies that were vaulted. Or right. in the case of Condor Man, I don't think they make a lot of money on it. I think Return to Oz is kind of in that same category. Yeah. But Return to Oz is on, on Disney+. Plus. Uh, this one is not. So I'd say go on Twitter right now hashtag we want condor man <laughs> the groundswell begins now uh, let's, well, let's get there also son of flubber let's get some more stuff on there disney plus <laughs> you can rent it uh streaming on on youtube slash google play right now hmm. so it's also on amazon prime you oh, rent it? it for three bucks or you can buy it for 9.99 we went ahead and bought it because i didn't want to pay to rent it two or three times to prep for this i'd say it's worth your time i i would say don't go into it looking for a lost masterpiece uh, but it's just fun. It's a fun movie. So, uh, Greg Hatcher, I want to thank you again for coming on the show today. Thank you for watching Condor Man. <laughs> it's not like we asked him to watch a Zack Snyder movie, for goodness sakes. Well, no, truthfully, I was a little leery because, uh, you know, I did feel hurt and abused after watching all five of the Highlander movies. Oh, no, 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 nowhere near that. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere, uh, David Gutierrez is, is wringing his hands together and laughing. Um, <laughs> He's still mad at me about that. You know, oh, every so often online, he'll just like snipe at me about, you know, the oh, fact that I don't like Ireland. He's messing with you. I dot, know. dot, dot, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certain that he is. But uh, on the other hand, it still comes up. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again. Thanks for, for enduring. For Absolutely. Sure. Thank you. So, Greg, if people want to find uh, stuff that you're writing and working on or your columns on Atomic Junk Shop, where Atomic do they go? AtomicJunkShop.com is where we are most of the time. Um, you can also find me. I have an author page on Amazon where you can see various books that I'm in or have written or have worked on. Um, the big seller is the, the Sherlock Holmes pastiches. Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective is a series of paperbacks that I've been part of. My editor had the brainwave since, you know, everyone is doing updated Sherlock or action Robert Downey Sherlock right. or, you know, whatever. Nobody is doing old school Holmes and Watson in Victorian London fighting crime without meeting Oscar Wilde or Dracula or anybody. <laughs> just just doing the detective work that we would do that. That would be our niche. And, uh, and that's been a lot of fun. I have two coming out in the coming year, oh, I believe. Cool. Yeah. I, um, the, the most recent one was kind of a, it's very nerdy. It's a continuity patch, but it's always bothered me that Holmes went from being the preeminent consulting detective in England and Europe to being a bee farmer on the Sussex Downs to <laughs> spending a year undercover just before World War One under the identity of Altamont breaking up Von Bork's spy ring. Hmm. That arc just seemed odd to me, so I finally explained it. Nice. Oh, very cool. Nice. 
So thank you so much, Greg. You're very welcome. We love having you on. And a special thank you to our episode sponsors. We have 11 of them. Yes. Oh, my God. So a special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Gus Lindgren, Jem Newman, Sinjin, David Gutierrez, who we mentioned before, and Calzone. <laughs> Calzone. Hey, Calzone. Uh, thank you guys so much. We love having you guys supporting us. And if you want to become an episode sponsor, check us out on patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians, or check it out on our website, radio versus the Martians.com. There's a big green button. Click on that and you can join those illustrious folks, one of whom teases Greg regularly. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to thank you guys so much and we'll catch you next month. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. save Princess Juliet, held captive by the evil Count Lorca. Who can save the city? Who? Who? This is a job for Condor Man! (laughs) 